Well, today we have Jade joining me on Krista Living Sober podcast, and she's here to share her story of addiction and recovery. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are, where you're from? Well, I'm 31. I recently moved to Florida four years ago. I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, Taunton specifically. Pretty much never really went anywhere other than (laughs) there because kind of seems like when you get stuck in a city, you get stuck there forever. I grew up always helping uh, my mom raise my brothers. And so I had a lot of responsibility in my life, um, pretty much from a super young age. Uh, My brother, my youngest brother is 11 years younger than me. I was basically mom number two. And uh, so that So you kind of had to grow up at a really young age and into like like an adult role full of responsibilities. Yes. And my mom was also really ill when I was growing up. So I was taking care of her as well. That's a lot on somebody who's really young, you know. Yeah. So that was, you know, I mean, I really liked having all that responsibility because I'm a go-getter and like to strive for more and achieve big things. But it was definitely a lot of stress, you know, in my life at a pretty early age. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. And how old were you? Uh, Well, I was 11 when my youngest brother was born. My middle brother is only two years younger than me. I've always kind of been an old soul. So I was always kind of like um, the really mature one for my age uh, growing up always. So even when I was really little, I took a lot of responsibility of helping my, my brother grow up as well, even before the youngest one came along. So... I liked helping with homework and cooking dinner and cleaning the house. (laughs) The big sister role. (laughs) Yes, exactly. If you don't mind me asking, what was your mom sick with? Uh, She has an autoimmune disease um, and she has fibromyalgia on top of that. And she has neuropathy. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. What's she doing? Well, she has been doing very well um, up until September when she contracted COVID. Mm -hmm. And um, she's luckily over COVID. um, But with an autoimmune disease, basically when you get sick, it takes you a really long time to recover in comparison to just the average person. When you you or I get sick, um, well, you're pregnant, so we'll leave you up. <laughs> um, but when a regular person gets sick, um, you know, their immune system is able to combat it. And then with her, it just takes longer. And what happens is, is what her immune system is down, which leaves her open to more illnesses. So she ended up from the antibiotics that they had to give her, she ended up getting thrush. And then um, she just had some other complications. So She's still kind of battling the sickness because hers is like a snowball. So once she starts getting sick, she just continues to get sick. But she's on the up and up right now. So that's good. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard for everybody. This whole COVID, Omnicrom, whatever it is these days. It's awful. Well, and it definitely adds to the stress. So, you know, staying sober while super stressed out. Oh, yeah part of the trick right (laughs) yeah so you just celebrated two years 
Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. What, what's yeah. your sober date? Um, January 2nd. Awesome. Yay. So, Yay. so proud of you. Right? I actually, it's funny because when I was in high school um, and in middle school, I was like super straight edge and I actually used to make fun of people who did drugs. <laughs> and um, I you, like looked down like, on them. You were like, <laughs> yes, I did. I thought I was so much better than them because I was like responsible and I like, you know, took care of my mom and took care of my brother. And yeah. um, <clears throat> so I felt like, you know, some sort of like like I was better than them because I never did anything like that. But um, why not make more money? I'll get another job. And um, so I really hustled hard pretty much up until I was 18. When I turned 18, because my mom was on housing, because she's a single mom of three kids, she was on housing. Um, her housing started taking my income into account. So because I was working and I had all really? these jobs, you were 18? Um, when I turned 18, I yeah. was considered an adult. So right. my income got wrapped into the housing. Wow. That meant I had to pay rent to live at home. So I said, peace out because I could pay $50 more and go live with my bestie. So, yeah. so when we met very first got our very first apartment, um, that's pretty much when I decided to start letting loose a little bit. Okay. So for you, it kind of was like a late bloom sort of start with like the drinking and the drugs and whatever. Yeah. And I honestly, I, um, I never did any drugs, uh, for a really long time. I really was, and I really didn't even drink that often. I only really drank with my friends when they asked me to go drinking or like a social like party, yeah. going out type of yeah. drinking. Yeah. And I used to be the kind of person who could have one or two drinks and that was okay with me and I was cool and I was just right. fine with that. And then basically I just, I started hanging out with people who were party animals and being in the restaurant industry uh, is Oh, yeah. A lot of people drink in the restaurant industry because, you know, it's a tough job and there's alcohol easily accessible after shift. So, you know, you stay and have a drink or two after work. I know that all so well from working in the restaurant industry. Right. There's just, it's such a party scene when the restaurant closes down. Like all I knew from every job I've ever had in the restaurant was drinking after work partying yes. after work, waking up right. with a hangover to do it all over again. Right. And not only that, but like on shift, you know, everybody's talking about where are you going to go get drunk after work, you know? Yeah. So basically, as soon as I turned 21, the very first bar I went to legally as a 21 year old, my friend knew the bartender and uh, they made our drink so strong. It was ridiculous. And I, this was this was before GPS and um, before smartphones. Yeah. Um, I was following my friend home because I didn't know where we were because it was like his bar that he wanted to go to. And mm-hmm. I didn't, it was like out in Fall River. So I was following him home and he was totally hammer faced and he was driving exceptionally <clears throat> fast. Oh, no. And I was trying to call him and text him to try to get him to slow down, but he wasn't. And so it got to a point where I actually lost him in front of me. 
And so oh, the, the thought went through my head, like I'm lost in the middle of nowhere. I guess I just need to speed up and catch up to him. Well, that was a poor idea. We both got pulled over. We both got a DUI separately and both of our cars were new. They both got impounded, but that didn't stop me. So the man who actually had my court case uh, was sick and he took a really long time. He tried really hard to help me get out of the DUI. Mm -hmm. um, and it took three years, but in that process of three years, I continued I went and got my, um, I paid the $500 to keep having my license. I ended up just, I ended up moving to Brockton shortly after that. And I just really jumped into the party scene hard. Me and my friends, we used to go out to the bar almost every single night. So we started getting really hammer faced all the time. And then that was not enough. So that's when the drugs started coming in. One of my friends introduced me to Molly and we started doing that. And uh, one of my friends that I roomed with at the time, she lost her job. So she decided she was going to sell Molly. So then we bought Molly so that she could pay her rent. Oh, man. The um, so it got really <laughs> sticky really quick. So we ended up doing Molly for like six months straight. Molly and is so crazy I remember doing that like every single weekend for like a few months straight yeah. not every day but I would go to work and then we would go to Ocean Club in Quincy and party yep. and yes. just take Ocean Molly Club. smoke pot be drunk oh my god it was just I don't even know how I'm alive Molly yeah. was straight up crazy shit I remember when it first came out it was like the crystallized molly where you just let it you like you would chew it or like put it in a drink or something or and then there was like powder form yeah i don't know that shit was crazy we my friends uh taught me the parachute trick where you would put it in a little piece of paper the crystal okay and then you would swallow the whole thing like a pill yeah and um yeah that got you messed up pretty quick because oh it went right into your stomach <laughs> Yeah. And and then we used to snort it too. Damn. So, yeah. And then um and then I started doing a lot of coke alongside with the Molly. Just got really crazy, you know. I just I was we were partying every single day. My house became a party all the time. So even when I was trying to be good, um yeah. I would come home from work and there would be a party at my house and I'd have to catch up. A lot of times it was just a lot of chaos and lots of drinking and we would drink before we went to the bar and then at the bar and then after party after the bar yeah <laughs> never sleep go back to work do it all over again so there was just a lot there was a lot a lot and I actually started dating someone who was selling coke so then me and him we stopped going out all the time but we just like did it all the time we would sit up and like he would play video games and we would just sit at the house for do nothing for hours or days or whatever yeah. we both had jobs so we thought we were functioning and 
doing fine and not having a problem. So, you know, it, it was, there's just a lot of different avenues that I tried out. Luckily, I never, I, I did try to take um, pills one time, a couple times I tried, but I immediately vomited. Thank God I am allergic to them. So, oh my gosh. So I never went down that avenue. Yeah. Um, but so I mean, we, you were doing cocaine and Molly. I mean, that's yeah. enough, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So and then I thought it was when you were fine. doing, you were still drinking while oh, yeah. you were on Molly and stuff. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I did all that for a long time. And then, and then I decided that I really needed to get sober. So how long do you, do you think you were using? Um, at that point, it was probably like six years. Six years. And then I started dating this kid who was basically a homebody. He never left his house. So I thought it would be perfect because me and him could just chill at his house all the time. And, um, and he didn't drink. So um, we just hung out and watched movies. And he was um, really fun in a lot of ways that were different from a lot of other people because he didn't drink. So like we did arts and crafts a lot. We used to go on hikes. So I stayed sober for a year when me and him got together. And then um, I decided I was going to go hang out with some friends without him. And I ended up getting really drunk and doing coke. So did he know about your past? Yes. He knew that you were into drugs and that you were drinking before he met you and he was sober. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you had, so, you guys had like a good relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Really healthy. Like he kept you out of trouble and then <laughs> you found it. He did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I proceeded to be a terrible human and tell him that I was going to continue to do drugs and he could either break up with me or deal with it. He gave you an ultimatum. Or you you gave him the ultimatum. I gave him the oh, ultimatum. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I pretty much told him, like, I'm going to keep doing drugs. I want to do drugs. And if you don't like it, too bad, so sad. So from that moment, you went back out using you just knew that like you wanted to continue using and you were like fuck it you yeah. were like I'm gonna continue using you know like my boyfriend doesn't so that kind of put you in a predicament where you chose the drugs over your relationship yeah over a healthy relationship yeah and he loved me endlessly right. um he would have done anything for me and um and he chose to stay with me unfortunately I dragged him down the road with me and he started using as well so we continued to do that for okay. a while and then and then we moved to Florida I was supposed to be um buying a massage establishment um oh yeah I remember and, that you were into massaging yep so I've been a massage therapist now for 13 years okay you're still doing it yes ma'am okay awesome Yes. The reason I moved to Florida was because I had an opportunity to buy a massage establishment because 
um, with massage, you have to have your license and in each state it's regulated differently. In Massachusetts, when I first originally got my license back in 2009, I didn't have to take the national certification exam. But once they said that I did, I was just grandfathered in. So I never had to take the test. But mind you, um, the MBLEX is a very, very hard test. That's pretty much like a nursing exam. So the nursing exam is called the NBLEX. And for massage, it's called the MBLEX. So it's very close. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, but so basically, uh, I couldn't get my license here in Florida until I took this test. I tried to take the test yeah, and I failed. Oh no. It was $200 a whack. So then I studied for six months Mm -hmm. and I took the test again and I failed again. So I said, oh, well, I'm just going to move to Florida anyway. And <laughs> so at this point, you were already in Florida, though, right? No, I hadn't moved. Oh, okay. Yet. You were just, yeah. okay. I was preparing to move. Yep. So uh, when I got to Florida, I obviously could not buy an establishment for massage without a license for massage. So. Yeah. I, um, I kind of was very discouraged and honestly just devastated at the fact that I couldn't buy this business and or get my license doing my career that I've worked very hard for many years to achieve. Um, even though I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, many of my friends and associates had no idea I had a problem. So I remained pretty, um, I would say, you know, under the under the radar for most people. My a lot of my family didn't know. Um, a lot of my friends didn't know. Pretty much only the circle that I hung with knew. So that must have been hard in itself, just like dealing with all that kind of yeah. alone because you were hiding it. You were like isolating the fact that you had an addiction. Yes. Yeah. So it really pulled me away from a lot of my family. Um, The year that I moved to Florida, a couple months before that, my grandfather on my dad's side passed away. I'm sorry about that. Thank you. And he he had been struggling with cancer for 11 years. But pretty much the previous six to seven years, uh, I was just partying all the time. So I missed a lot of time with him that, you know, I can never get back. I so feel that, that was... so much because when my dad had Alzheimer's, like all I did was avoid being in the house and around him and around my mom trying to help him. And it was just like a sad, yeah. depressing, miserable atmosphere. And I look back and I'm like, well, I was an idiot. Cause like, why, you know, I was just, drinking to avoid all that when I could have been there for him or I could have spent right. just sit there and spend time with him but and I I beat myself up about that you know so many times but I forgave myself that's in sobriety right <laughs> that's it's hard. hard it's hard it is hard it really is it was the addiction overtaking our lives you know and we probably would have been completely different people back then 
you know, like who we are now. But well, I mean, we would have never met, girl. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I get that. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard. So after that, did it kind of make you want to drink again? Yeah. So when he passed, that was really devastating. Um, but so what's crazy is, is, um, actually, so my grandfather passed and then my mom moved to Florida with both of my younger brothers. Um, at that point in my life, I was, so I was kind of like a backup a couple of years, but at that point was really my like worst because I felt like my mom left because she didn't want my brothers to see the bad influence that I was setting. That really, it really took me down for a while. I ended up actually, um, I started seeing a therapist and I started um, taking some antidepressants because I was in a really bad way. And I had lots of suicidal thoughts and I just was so disappointed in myself that I continued to do those things, but I, the disappointment didn't help me stop. I, it made me want to do it more. Yeah. You were like, you were so full of shame and guilt. Yes, for sure. And it just like ate at you. Right. Yeah. Of course it didn't want to make us stop. I feel like it kind of almost made us want to do something worse or something more for me. Anyway, that's what happened. I would agree. And, and that's really when I, like, I started really getting heavy into it. Um, so had, while you were, like, in therapy and taking medication? Yeah, so it was really bad because then I was on medication and then I was still, I would not d- drink because the medication and the drinking didn't coincide. So then I started doing a lot more drugs because <clears throat> trying to stay level-headed, you know, it's hard. Your mind is so twisted when you're in that frame of thinking that it just it really screwed me up for a while but my dad yeah that's the obsession right we become so obsessed it's like the compulsion of the addiction just it has its hold on us and it's so hard to break that compulsion it really does it really is hard was still just doing it I was you know being crazy and wild um but my dad kept inviting me to church and basically he just, he kept begging me to come back to church. Cause when I was younger, I used to go to church. And, um, when I was 16, I gave my life to Jesus. And then when I was 18, that's when I kind of turned 100% in the opposite direction. And so my dad actually started inviting me to this group called um, an alternative to addiction. So it was called AA, but it wasn't AA. All right. And um, I don't know guy, if I've heard of that. It's um something that I had never heard of before. Um, the the guy is it like, religious based? Yes. Okay. But it wasn't really about religion. It was just about finding something else to do with your time instead okay. of going out on a Friday night and drinking. Right. So um, the guy who led the group, he actually was an addict for 15 years. And his home church in Jersey had a group like this. And he moved away from Jersey 
to start over and like start fresh and get sober. And he joined our church and he had brought up to our pastor that he thinks that our church should have some type of group like this. And he said, well, why don't you lead it? Which he was very um, reluctant to do. Yeah. But he was awesome at it. And um, so seeing him really inspired me because, um, you know, I mean, being addicted for 15 years to anything is, and becoming clean is a struggle. So yeah I just one day I just asked him I'm like so how the heck am I supposed to just get clean like I don't understand what I'm supposed to do like I wake up and I want to drink every day and so he said that I needed to ask God to remove that want from my life and I was like that's all I have to do seriously (laughs) (laughs) And, um, at this point you're are you still in denial that you have a problem or yeah. did you admit it yet I mean I admitted it to them that like obviously I was drinking a lot yeah. but I would never never necessarily admitted to them that I had a problem you know right. yeah I went home that night and that's I I prayed that prayer and the next morning I woke up and I didn't want to drink and I was like isn't it amazing that's weird so I called my dad and I was like, dad, what is this hocus pocus that you guys are teaching me? <laughs> <laughs> and um, <clears throat> shortly after is when I found the very kind boyfriend that I was sober for a year with after that. So that was my preface to that year that I was sober with him. And then I decided, you know, when we moved to Florida, that my number one goal was that I needed to get back to church because that's really what helped me want to be sober in the first place so for me church and sobriety kind of went hand in hand my main goal was to find a good church family here and that was pretty much my only goal when I got here other than just you know trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself because the only thing else that I was good at that I knew of other than massage therapy was waitressing so you know um So I got a couple of waitressing jobs. Um, actually, the very first month I was here, I had $1,000 saved. So I didn't work. And I just literally partied for an entire month. I went out every day. We just went ham for a whole month. With that boyfriend that you had? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then... Um, so you didn't get into church when you went... When you got to Florida. I I did start going to church. I was going to church every Sunday. Yeah, every Sunday, but you were partying. like. But I was still partying every day. (laughs) So I was a little, you know. Yeah. I was in church crying almost every Sunday because I just. Felt guilty. (laughs) Felt guilty and I didn't know how to change my behavior. You know, I. I remember feeling I was so judged every Sunday in church from the life I was living because it was nothing the life they portray that churchgoers should have so I always felt so like dirty and like I would burst into flames but luckily that's not how things work no (laughs) (laughs) no I got my faith back too and I believe that like you need faith a lot of faith in your higher power in God 
to be able to recover from addiction. Spirituality is such an important factor in some well, in some way. Yeah. And it doesn't like, have to be God, but knowing that you can't do it by yourself. I think the reason why having faith helps people in sobriety is that because we basically already think that we suck. So how are we supposed to do anything? You know, I mean, yeah. most people who are addicts have really bad self-esteem. They, yeah. whether or not they portray that they have good self-esteem. I mean, look at both of us. We're young, pretty right. women, you know, I mean, we've got great self-esteem, but you know, <laughs> we hate ourselves on the inside. And that's why you did those things because, you know, there's something that you either went through that or, um, yeah, it stems you know, from tra- trauma, trauma. Exactly. It's definitely childhood trauma. Yeah. And, even if we don't think we went through anything when we're younger, we there is something there. There's something mm-hmm. that made us the way we are. Yeah. And it, like even sometimes it's stuff that, you know, we just maybe never addressed. And it right. maybe wasn't even that bad of a thing. But if you don't address right. the truth. But when you're you just... a child, what do you do? You push it down. You yep. conceal it. You get over it quickly, right? Because you don't know what to do with those emotions. Right. I, um, it's really TMI. And I mean, I don't talk about it all the time, obviously, because it's not a super fun conversation to have with everybody. But, um, I was also sexually abused as a child. So I just thought, you know, let me just stuff that down. I'll pretend like it never happened. So actually, the same year that my grandfather died and my mom moved to Florida, Mm-hmm. I actually took my abuser to court that year as well. Wow. So, it so was... yeah, that, I mean, you know, that's going to leave you severe trauma that you don't even know how to deal with until you're older. How do you yeah. deal with that as a child? Right. You know? And how do you deal with it as, as an adult, you know? Um, I feel like, you know, it, they say, like, at that age, like, when you're younger, anything traumatic like that is going to... It's going to do something with your brain chemistry to prevent it from developing the way it should. So, you know, with that missing. Yeah. My dad always used to, like, never understand, like, why I couldn't make friends. And I always wanted to have a boyfriend. And, you know, I was so concerned with being with someone. And but I think that subconsciously my brain was just like, this is what you're supposed to do, you know, and like you need to be loved. And I made a lot of poor choices subconsciously that I didn't know were affecting my, my mentality, you know? And I always told myself, like, I'm never going to let it affect me. And I'm gonna, you know, just rise above it. But those things, you know, I, I know that it had a lot to do with why I became an addict and why I was an alcoholic, because just didn't want to deal with those things I didn't it was hard of course this reminds me so much of like something I was watching I can link it in this video for everybody but um it was a pot another guy's podcast he was interviewing Dr. Gaber Mate I'll link it in the video that he wrote a book called Hungry Ghosts and it's all about addiction and trauma, where it stems from, from our childhood, and how it affects like, us becoming addicted to anything. 
whether it's drugs or sex or gambling, whatever it may be, like, and how it affects our brains growing up. And it yeah. was so interesting, but it's so true. I'll link yeah. the book, too. It sounds interesting. I want to read it. Right? Yeah. And I love the psychology behind it, too. You know, like, um, let me like, see what it says. He was saying, like, you've heard of the Buddhist wheel of life. I haven't how there's different realms that we're all in so i guess there's a human realm and that's our ordinary selves our everyday selves and then there's the animal the animal realm which is our drives our appetites sexually the need to eat and then there's the hell realm which is suffering rage despair and terror and then there's a hungry ghost realm and that's like the realm before hell or death but that's where there's small tiny there's like ghosts with small tiny mouths and um just like skinny and empty and they're always hungry you know always haunting around this realm like looking Mm. for something to fill them up and they're always looking for fulfillment and they're never able to achieve it and it said that everybody is supposed to go through the ghostly realm at some point in their life (laughs) Mm. Um, wow yeah, it's kind of haunting, but he went on to explain, like, so much about how, like, all this stuff stems from our childhood, from trauma, from all this stuff, and how it affects addiction. It's so interesting. Wow, that is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, too, like, that kind of stuff, like, is so overlooked because people are scared to talk about their pasts you know I mean not like and sometimes there's no one to talk to for some people right well I think like social media has allowed people to be able to have a platform to kind of say things that maybe they wouldn't have a conversation with somebody in person with you know oh I agree Um, yeah I think that really you know sometimes that could be a good thing or a bad thing um (laughs) Because, you know, they kind of get, like, they're hidden behind a screen, you know? And so there's security in that. And whether or not they use that security for good or bad is, you know, obviously based on their trauma, too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It is so accessible these days. It's right at our fingertips, right? The recovery scene online has been so amazing ever since starting this podcast and just meeting so many other addicts who are struggling. It's amazing to hear everyone's story, but also the community online, like, it's right there, you know? And right. I'm sure like it helped a lot when COVID hit, when meetings ended, when you couldn't go to wherever you went for the connection that helped. Um, so it's amazing. Yeah, I think that social media, like, and the intention of, the original intention of it you know, was so that we can communicate with people all over the world with similarities, you know, I mean, right. That's really what is so cool about it is that we can have conversations with somebody in a whole nother country about their sobriety. Maybe we met them through Facebook, you know, it's just one of those things that is interesting. Yeah. But it's a form of connection. I feel like also mentioned earlier in what I was studying but like how sometimes we don't have that connection when we're younger 
or yes. even when we're older and it's just we feel so isolated and alone so it's always like good to surround right. yourself by connection but and I can see how like online that becomes dangerous mm. but well also too you know like sometimes people will use it as a coping mechanism I know a couple of people personally who they'll literally say to me I'm having a bad day let me post something on Facebook so I can get some communication from my friends Right. Instead of saying on their Facebook, yeah, I'm having me. a bad day. No, <laughs> no. Me. No, but, but it's so easy it. to do it, though. You know what I mean? Like, it's so right. easy for us to be in our feelings and then to type it out and post it. And it's but just that's like, oh, good. I always delete it, but it's not good. Oh, see, I think it's good to express what you're actually I mean, it feeling. Is. It is. You know, because then your friends know that you're upset, right? And so they're going to reach out to you and, and try to comfort you. That, yeah. I think, is totally a great way to use social yeah, media. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I'm talking about when people don't actually express how they feel and they just use it as a way to get something. I you see. know, like they want to feel good. They want to feel better. So they're like, let me yeah. post a selfie of myself so that I can get a zillion likes on it. Or I see. let me like superficial. Yeah. And it's it's that's a bad coping mechanism because yeah. You know, we we can use it in a different form to feel better about ourselves. And realistically, like you said, it's very superficial. There's no reality to it. It's not, they're not being transparent about why they're really trying to get attention, you know? And, and I think that that's hard for people sometimes too, because those are coping mechanisms that we learn growing up. My brother has um, ADHD. And one of the things that me and him struggled with was that, like, I was always a goody two-shoes. Mm -hmm. And so in school, I was, I excelled in school. I was an A-plus student all through school. But my brother really struggled in school, and it was very difficult for him. For, for somebody like him in school behind me, he basically felt like the only way he could get attention was negative. So he would act out in a negative way to receive more attention, you know, and a lot of yeah. people, a lot of do people that. do that. It's all about as adults, what, what can we do about it now to change these coping mechanisms, to address them, to be aware. I think part of the, the biggest part about being sober is um, that your feelings are no longer masked with anything. You cannot mask them with anything it's just they right. smack you in the face all day long and you just have to take it <laughs> so. oh yeah <laughs> that is the good and the bad thing about sobriety you get sober and you're like oh what are these emotions because you know you're not stuffing them down you're not drinking them away you're not taking drugs to numb them yep. uh, head on <laughs> yeah and if you don't have that support system yeah, that's that's really where I think a lot of people that's why sobriety can be so difficult is mm -hmm. that they don't reach out. First of all, they don't admit that they had a serious problem. Right. You need to do that first. You because need to come to a place where you know that your life became unmanageable and that you're powerless. Right. Right. I think that's actually the hardest step. It is. I mean, truly, nobody wants even, to admit any of that. I mean. No one. I mean, I didn't want to admit that I had a problem. Me neither. It took me how long? Until I was 29. Right. From 12. <laughs> and then it took me all this time. 
three years ago for me to finally admit that my life is unmanageable. I am powerless. I need help. Yeah. Right. Uh, why so long? Because it's tricky. Really coming to the conclusion that like, like I did this to myself. I made the choices to put myself in this situation and to say, okay, you did that, but now what are you going to do to get out? And admitting that you made a bad decision or a bad choice and made many probably you can make good choices in the opposite direction you know that's definitely the hardest part I think is that people don't find the support that they need when they do admit that they have a problem because finding that support even if it's but it's also you have to be willing to get the help. You know what I mean? Yes. Like no one's going to force you if you're not ready, if you're not willing to get the help. Because yeah. so many times people are like, hey, the help's here. The help is there. Mm-hmm. But that person's like, oh, well, not right now. Like, Or they're not ready, you know. Well, because they don't want to admit that they have a right. problem. And that's it's just such a tricky slope. It is. Yeah. And learning also in sobriety that other people have to ask you for help that you can't just you can't fix other people no you can't in in their trauma in their spiral in their mess you know that's they have to decide that they're ready like you said they have to decide that they're they're ready to truly admit it's time to change right what were the steps that you took to get clean and sober? So it's funny, act this time getting sober, because um, there was that one time I did the year sober, and then there was another time I went six months with no drugs, but I still drank. And the drugs went off and on for a long time. They weren't consistent. That's why I thought I didn't have a problem. Um, <laughs> so but, I do it all the time, right? Right. Just making- I only did it on the weekends. It's fine. So I wanted to know what step you took to get sober. When I got sober this time, I it was funny. I actually, I went to an AA meeting with a guy that I thought was cool. And I went in support for him. So okay. <laughs> my very first meeting that I went to um, down here in Florida. Now, um, when I had gotten my DUI in Massachusetts, I was actually required to go to many AA um, meetings, but I hated them and I thought they were stupid and I got no benefit from them whatsoever. I agree. (laughs) Like when you first start going to AA meetings, when you have to, or you're just like, mandated. exactly. I was too. (laughs) My yeah. first experiences were like, you have to, and it's just like, ugh. Like, You're why? like, let me get through this meeting so I can get my signature and get yeah. out of here. Did you still drink or do any? Oh, of yeah. That? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I still drank the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Time. I went, and the reason that he had been going was actually because he was court mandated, which I found out later. I decided that I was going to go and support with him. And the very first meeting that me and him went to, I was like, wow, I like really need to hear all that stuff. Like it really impacted me. So I was like, 
can I come back with you tomorrow? And he was like, yeah. So I decided that I was going to go back tomorrow. And then I went every single day for a week because I, yeah, I felt like I was like, did you have, did you have a sort of spiritual awakening happen? Would you call it that or not yet? Mm, I think that my spiritual awakening really happened more at church. At that point in time, I was going to a church um, consistently and I had actually just recommitted my life to Christ. I had just got rebaptized. Okay. It was, I was really feeling close to God. Like I felt really close to God, but I just, I wasn't sure what steps I needed to take to truly stop drinking, to really change my life. Right. Over that week, it was like smacking me in the face that this is what I could do. This is something that I could do to really, truly make a change, you know, to actually step up and make that change. So when I decided to make that change, uh, basically, I went every single week. I mean, every single day for that one week. And at the end of the week, I got my white chip. And the white chip is the chip of commitment to make your commitment to stop drinking. I was scared because I knew I really needed to stop. But um, in that moment, I decided that if I was going to quit drinking, that I was also going to quit drugging. I was going to quit both of them at the same time, cold turkey. And Cold turkey. Yep. Cold turkey. So, and then what happened? <laughs> so, that, so then I stayed. That, it was, you quit cold turkey for how long? Till now. Really? That's how wow. it worked. Yep. I just, I had tried. So like so cold times. turkey, meaning you didn't, you had AA, right? Yeah. And then I did, have, did AA, you but... have a sponsor? Did you do the steps? Yeah. Okay. No worries. Nope. But you had AA, you had church. I had so church. you had like your own little. That was my way of doing it. I, I, yeah. I truly honestly believed that I didn't it wasn't AA that really made me quit drinking. It was right. really my, my want to yes. stop. You know, I, I truly think that my will to be a better person, like I just, I didn't want to be the person who flaked on work. I didn't want to be the person who would commit to something and didn't show up. I didn't want to be the kind of person who was constantly just, I mean, I'm still always late, so I can't say that I'm, can't say that I'm uh, ever on time to anything now, but. It's okay, um, we all have these character defects. Those aren't, those don't go away. No. (laughs) Um, But I think that I just, I had this strong will to just not be a crappy person anymore. I didn't want to be a liar all the time because I was constantly hiding what I was doing. And, you know, I was just living a double life and. I was tired of it. I was, it was tiring, to be honest. It was exhausting. And I, and I was so exhausted that I just, I wanted to give it all up. So I decided that when I made that commitment, that I truly was going to live a better life, that I was going to be the type of person that somebody could rely on again, that I had to work on a lot of things because I realized that, you know, amongst the being late, I have plenty of other character flaws that I want to work on. 
So, right. so that my steps, my it's steps. amazing that you knew that though. I think it well, takes a lot of people a lot of time before they get there. You know what I mean? Well, I would say, you know, between the six and 10 years that, that four yeah. years of time that I wanted to get sober, you yeah. know, I, I, I knew I needed to get sober. Um, but it was just really hard and I thought moving would be make it easier, but I just created a new reckless life here. So it, it, it didn't really make it easier, but when I decided to, cause you weren't ready then. Right. Yeah. I thought I was ready, but I wasn't four years of quitting off and on over those, that time period, it, it, you know, and I, and I went like a month here and there. I went two months here and there, I went three months here and there. It just never stuck because I wasn't ready. I wasn't, I, I wasn't true to the commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, I also never tried to quit both at the same time. Uh, so hard. I mean, they say do one at a time so you don't get. But when I did one, I wanted to do the other. But, I mean, and that's good. So mine was like, mine was like, if I did this, then I wanted to do that. So, yeah. and if I did that, then I wanted to do this. So I learned that if I need to quit, then I have to quit both. And that's just the way it has to be. And <laughs> that's the way that I became successful in it was because I went to church every Sunday. I actually started going to church on Wednesdays and, and I was going to a Bible study. So I was going to church like three times a week. I was going to meetings at least three times a week. But you had a foundation built, which is very helpful. I I tried. Yeah. Church and meetings. That's like, it's a great foundation to have when you're trying to do the recovery journey. And I had a lot of support from my family. And that's amazing too. Which I know a lot for it. I know a lot of people don't get support from their family. Yeah. And I know that that can be one of the hardest things to this day. Still thank my dad and my stepmom for praying for me every day when I was in that hot mess of a life, because I don't know how I survived to be a hundred percent honest. I hear you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, me and you had some crazy reckless times when I remember we (laughs) we partied, we we did crazy shit sobriety is amazing and congratulations again on your two years but yes compared to how we were back then and now total difference (laughs) what sobriety can do for you in life after living an addiction and if you do come to the awakening if you do come over to the light from the dark amazing things happen you even look different you sound different you feel different everything around you is like brighter. It's just, it's magical. So, okay. It's so funny that you say that, like everything around you is brighter. So, um, when I first got sober, I actually described it as I've never taken acid before, but when my friends tell me what acid feels like, they say that you just like, you think everything is so beautiful and you admire the world. And I'm like, you do like, (laughs) like, (laughs) you know but it's I not really like that but yeah but that's how you think it is right <laughs> yeah. um but like I felt like I was almost like in this alternate universe because I was finally in reality do you know what I mean like yeah. I 
I could we're finally in the real living realm. We're alive. Right. Before and I was we like the hungry in the dead realm. The hungry ghost. We were yes. like just yes. surviving, just existing, trying yes. to survive. Yes. Oh. I think that I think that's it was a wild concept to me. And I had explained it to multiple people. I like I would look around and I'd be like, it's so green like the grass is so green and like the trees are so beautiful and the sky is so gorgeous and granted I live in Florida so it's a lot easier to do that yeah. here than it is in oh. um New England but um it was like I had this new appreciation for life you know mm-hmm. it's like beautiful could, yeah I remember there was one time I was still at the Salvation Army and it was snowing and I caught like the snowflakes in my the palm of my hand and I remember looking down and it never happened to me before but I saw the snowflakes for what like snowflakes look like like the little crystals and each one was different and I saw that at the time me and this person there used to like call moments like that God shots and It was just a moment where I was like, wow, like I'm sober. Is it is it because I'm sober that I can see these crystals, the snowflakes yeah. as they are or what is happening? Like I've never experienced that beautiful thing before, but now we get that in so many different ways. Yeah, it's almost like a veil has been like lifted. Like you can truly see what's going on around you because you're looking. Yep. Because when you're we were so blind, we were blind before blinded in, in our addictions. When you're in your addiction, you're just you're hiding from the world all the time. And you're just like you're in this little bubble and you don't want anybody to know what you're doing. And you're just you're you're like you cut yourself off from reality, yeah. Yeah. you know, living in a sub- sober world. It, it's like I have a new life. And I mean, I obviously think that comes from from getting to know God better too. Like for me, that's my my travel has, has really changed because I want to be a more loving person. I want to be a more understanding person. I want to help others. I don't want to be selfish. I, I feel like I'm able to do those things because I'm not so self-absorbed now. Yeah. So Look at you with your podcast. I, I see that you see Yay. that. <laughs> well, I wanted to start this so I could get my story out there because I know so many people have stories. And one of my things is feeling alone. And I felt like I don't want other people to feel alone like that because it, it's just it's miserable. It's dark. And if I can just put it out there and talk to other people and maybe they can listen. And so far I've had people come to me and say like that, you know, how do I get sober? Like this helps them. Like, and it's just, it's a beautiful rewarding thing where you help others. And I think when we do come to the sober lifestyle, it's just, it's what we want to do. Yeah. Is there any advice that you would, you want to give the audience or listeners if they are still struggling in their active addictions? I would say that if you're still struggling in your active addiction, that you're not alone. You know, there there yeah. are so many people who are struggling, but there are people you can reach out to. And even if you reach out to somebody and you're not necessarily ready to admit that you have a problem, just to talk to somebody who is sober and who wants to help you, you know, 
reaching out to everyone isn't always a healthy way to get sober. If you reach out to your friends who are also in it, if they're drinking, if they're drugging, and you tell them that you want to get sober, you're not going to get a lot of support. Um, you may. Right. You, you may. might. There's a few of them that are like, okay, like, I understand, like, it's so important to you. But then it's just, I, I kind of They're going to still. Well, they're going to use. They're going to continue to use and drink and they get it, but they're not going to get sober. And they're not, not ready. Helpful because they're not ready. Exactly. You need to so surround yourself by surrounding other. yourself with other like-minded people. Yeah. So I know that meetings sound like the dumbest, stupidest thing ever <laughs> in the whole freaking Old world. Old men in the church basement drinking coffee. <laughs> no, <I'm> really, <laughs> but, but that's what you think it is when you're when you're in it. Like you really, I know. you don't see how it can truly help you, right? But right. surrounding yourself with other people who are also struggling and want to be sober. That is my biggest advice is that it's not necessarily a meeting. It's not necessarily church, but those are the two things that really helped me being around like-minded people who want to be better and we're still all broken. So if you go to church and you got crappy people around you, guess what? Don't be surprised because church is full of broken people. Right. Um, If you go to a meeting and there's somebody out in the parking lot doing a shot, guess what? Don't be surprised because we're all broken. You know, don't judge other people. Just ask for help. You know, don't, don't suffer alone. That's my biggest advice is that I didn't reach out to people when I could have. And even when people reached out to me, like you said earlier, you know, like there's people out there that wanted to help me. Yeah. I didn't want their help because I was afraid when you make that decision that you really do want to change turn to the people that have always been there for you that are a solid support system that do love you like yeah, don't there's always somebody. somebody always yeah it's hard Try to see to sometimes turn. but there is always someone there right and there is there is always at least one person you can turn to in your support group that or i mean in your in your life that is going to be a good support to you and I would. And sometimes you do have to find it in strangers, and that's okay. And that is okay. Right. That's why I loved meetings. Yeah. I wasn't ready to tell my family that I was a drug addict. Right. But I, w- I could tell a room full of strangers that I did drugs because yeah. that's easier for me, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. So. You have to come on for like part two or something. Yeah. I love having, talking to you. Yes. Anytime. <laughs> great. For sure. Awesome. Well, again, I am so proud of you. And thank you for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having a a podcast for us to be able to do this on, you know, and spreading love for others. Yeah. For real.